Feeling better? Looking better. Making life better. It's Life Tips. Life Tips. We'll explore the latest innovations, introduce you to the latest products, and bring you the tips from experts and environmental pioneers to help you lead a better life. Life Tips. Life Tips. Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, wiser. Welcome your hosts, Byron White and Amanda Smith. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today we're going to be talking food, 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 and uh, well, you are what you eat and uh, and drink. So we're going to talk about that today. How is the fabulous Amanda? How are you? I'm awesome. And you know, anything having to do with food, I'm I'm in. My fiance and I are such foodies. You know, any anytime we have a good show booked on food, I am all about it. <laughs> <laughs> we're going we're gonna to dive into a group blog, which is an interesting concept in, in itself. We're going to talk about that a little bit, uh, but we're going to be talking with uh, with Bonnie Zab Powell. Did I pronounce that right? I hope I did. Do you happen to know Amanda? <laughs> it, it sounds good. It sounds good to me. Sounds good. Well, we're going to yeah, learn Bonnie, if I pronounced it right. That's always, it's always a guessing game. Now, yeah. here's a cool question about your uh, your diet need. How much do you read? Um, and then make a decision to buy something because of what you read. You know, I'm actually very, very involved in keeping up with uh, nutritional information. You know, more recently, um, I started going the route of uh, eating more local foods, uh, eating more tofu, you know, uh, not eating as much meat. You know, they say it, it takes so much energy to produce meat, so much more energy than it does to produce, you know, uh, soy. So I am making more conscious choices. I've noticed that about myself in the past few years. And um, I think Bonnie can, can certainly weigh in a lot on, on the importance of eating locally and making better choices about how we eat, what we eat. The other challenge that I want to, to try to, to, try to uh, you know, see if, if Bonnie agrees with us on it and, 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 you know, really think a little bit about, and that's getting content and, and good quality content about foods, uh, and, and beverages, you know, out on the shelves, out in the storefront, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm really surprised we haven't seen that at like a Whole Foods, you know, with, with educational tips or advice or little mini articles. Think of the opportunity you have to educate with people sitting in line, for example, waiting for their, uh, you know, shopping cart to get to the cash register. There's just, there's a gold line of information that needs to get out to people. Um, Bonnie is, is the co-founder of, and of the Food Politics Group blog, um, Epicurean, which we're going to try to learn a little bit more about. Um, she also is a volunteer writer. Um, and a freelance writer for the San Francisco Chronicle, Mother Jones, Sierra, Gastronomica, Meat Paper, Grist.org, some really neat publications. So it sounds like she's a foodie. <laughs> um, and even more importantly, this sort of foodie on what she's calling soul food, which is sustainable, organic, lo- local, ethnic food. Wow, has she figured this thing out. So let's, let's be back in a second uh, with Bonnie. And, and, a, and an interesting spin on a new type of uh, soul food and the different kind of soul that you might be thinking in terms of soul. So we'll be back in a minute with everybody with Bonnie. Go behind the scenes of Life Tips with their Facebook fan page. Search for Life Tips Podcast on Facebook now. Life Tips will be right back after this short break. 
Are you happy with your landing page performance? Discover how to improve your landing page performance with ConversionCritic.com. Brought to you by Engine Ready. Turn your underperforming landing pages into cost-effective sales-producing machines. Be sure you're not wasting your precious PPC budget. Conversion Critic tools give you the ingredients to create high-converting landing pages. You don't have to be an expert to use Engine Ready's Conversion Critic tools, but you'll feel like a landing page pro. Take the guesswork out of increasing your conversion rate. Visit ConversionCritic.com and boost your conversion rate for free. That's www.ConversionCritic.com. SEOSeek.com is your one-stop site for everything SEO. From search engine marketing to pay-per-click management, SEOSeek.com delivers high-quality SEO services at affordable prices. SEOSeek.com can help you with SEO analysis, monthly reports, title and meta tag optimization, email support, and so much more. Want to keep your SEO in-house? Let our professional trainers teach SEO to your staff. Get a free quote and a free competitive analysis today at SEOC.com. Friend Finder. Friend Finder. The world's largest online dating network featuring over 100 million profiles at hot sites such as Passion.com and FastCupid.com represents enormous profit-making opportunities for webmasters just like you. With, with, with Friend Finder's ability to geo-target and provide billing solutions in most languages and currencies, you are sure to find our comprehensive network to be a good friend to your wallet. wallet. Get more traffic-maximizing details now at FriendFinder.com. SEO 101 Hi, thanks for having me. Do we pronounce your name okay? It's Aza, but it doesn't matter. Nobody ever gets that one. <laughs> Darn it all. I'm, I'm like batting 500 at best. <laughs> Not a problem. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the Ethicurian and, and your role as, as a writer and uh, co-founder of, of, uh, of that great site and blog. Uh, well, the Ethicurian, I started the Ethicurian in May of 2006 just with some friends. It was supposed to be sort of a fun personal project. We were all sort of bitten by the bug at the same time about wanting to know more about where our food came from. And we're very, I mean, just sort of starting at the beginning of this, but then um, it became, for me at least, kind of an obsession. And I switched from writing about business and technology to writing almost exclusively about food politics and sustainable agriculture. And uh, the group blog is really a great way to sort of spread the load. Um, It allows us to have we usually are able to post one or two things every day, and we have a different um, roster of writers from around the country, and some of them are interested in different aspects, and so it allows us to have kind of a mix of content. And we cover all kinds of things. Uh, as you mentioned, we focus on soul food, which is sustainable, organic, local, and or ethical. And it's about just sort of recognizing that there are sometimes competing values, and you, you really have to decide what your personal values are when it comes to food, because uh, although it's, it would be nice to think that food is just fuel, it's just you know calories that we put in our bodies, there are pretty far-reaching effects of that food, of how it's produced and, 
and who it's produced by and for, and not only uh, in issues of personal health, but environmental health and animal welfare and, you know, fair labor standards. So there's just, it's a, it's a pretty tangled web out there, and we're still trying to make sense of it, and I'm not sure we ever will, but part for us, that's the fun of it, is just sort of pulling on different strands of this web and trying to figure out what the right thing to do is, how, how we can chew the right thing in these circumstances. Give us a feel for the landscape out there um, from your perspective. Are, are things getting better? Is, is, is soul food have the right soul? Is it getting better? Is the soul getting better? <laughs> <laughs> I, think it, I think it is. I think a tipping point has been reached about maybe a year or so ago, and the new um, USDA agriculture census came out. And for the first time, we have an increase in farms. And it's a small increase, and it's an increase in small farms, um, which means that more people are getting into farming, which we desperately need. Um, there's less than one farmer for every 200 Americans. That's kind of crazy. Um, and, you know, the farmers' markets have exploded. They've actually, I think, um, I'm not positive about the number, but I think they've doubled since 2003 or 2004. Wow. Mm. which means that, yes, more people really are caring about where their food comes from, and they are expending the extra effort to find it, to find soul food. And also more people are growing it themselves. I mean, we're seeing victory gardens on the uprise as well, and people getting into even just, you know, growing a few tomatoes in the backyard. So, yeah, I think the signs are encouraging. And the other thing that means that it's encouraging but isn't something to watch out for is that corporations are really getting in on the act. I mean, they know what the buzzwords are. Everybody wants to use the word sustainable or green or natural in their marketing for their food. And, you know, you know something's reached a tipping point when the corporate marketing campaigns are are attempting to co-opt it. Mm -hmm. Are there any websites that could support the the Soul Initiative? Uh, What do you mean? So, you know, it just seems to me like the web is an opportunity to, you know, have local... Uh, you know, uh, produce and, and food um, be distributed via the web. Um, there know. is, you know, there are a few, there are quite a few uh, online sort of co-op systems that, that try to link farmers with chefs, and there's a new one that um, starting in the Bay Area that's been getting off the ground for about a year. It's called FarmersReach.org, I think. And there's some older, older co-op, online co-op systems in um, Wisconsin and in um, Kansas City. And the issue is, is that... Uh, Farmers tend not to be technical people. They, um, most of the ones I know have AOL email accounts, if any. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have websites. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, the reason that they're farmers is because they like to work outside on the land. Mm-hmm. They're not so interested in entering their online inventory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, one of my friends is uh, Severin Von Scharner Fleming, who is a 27-year-old activist behind Greenhorns.net, which is a great site for people who are interested in getting into farming. And she believes that what we need is more sort of teams that will support farmers. So city people who have a little extra time to help out, like who could maybe build a website in exchange for local organically grown produce and who could help with some of the the technical aspects because it's really kind of a lot to expect someone who's working a 14, 16-hour day of hard labor to then come in and, you know, figure out how to navigate a, a back, you know, a business-to-business back end. But why haven't we seen sort of a roll-up of, of somebody going out there and creating a platform where a farmer could show up and, 
you know, hit, hit, you know, submit their email address and their color palette they like and the name of their company in Presto, you know, they've got they've got a a, a, a section of of of, uh, of this big roll up website, you know, called you know Green Farmers, you know, USA dot com or something, right? So I'm just surprised we haven't seen a roll up like that. You know, you think there's an opportunity for something like that? Um, I think the money involved in that is too small to interest investors, to be honest. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, the farmers that are large, the farms that are, there's kind of a crisis in American farming, um, a crisis called farming in the middle. The small farms that are growing are people with a couple of acres who sell at farmer's markets. They don't have a su- the supply mm. to interest, um, you know, supermarkets. And the, the farms that are big enough to be supplying supermarkets, they already have that kind of inventory system. So until we have sort of more mid-sized farms that are too big for farmers' markets, but big enough for restaurants and small grocery store independent chains, then I can't really see there being a market opportunity there for any kind of um, web platform. However, there is something like you say that exists for farmers. It's called Small Farm Central, mm-hmm. and it's a project by a guy called Simon Huntley. And basically, for for a pretty minimal amount per month, he will. Farmers give him an email address and some photos, and he'll create a website for them with even some sort of back-end ordering availability. But you have to remember, you know, the the products that we're talking about in this case, they're perishable. Mm -hmm. A lot of these farmers don't have distribution chains. I mean, they have a truck. They drive to the farmer's market. Like, it doesn't make it quite so easy to just set up an online store and start selling, you know, zucchini to everybody who wants zucchini. It's um, it's just food is complicated. It's a from a business standpoint. There's kind of a reason why a lot of farms fail and why a few farmers make money. I mean, it's a it is a definitely much more complicated distribution chain and supply chain. So, how can I support some of the initiatives you folks are philosophically believing in? Um, so, I'm 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 here. I'm, I'll, I'll be shopping tonight at Whole Foods, for example. <laughs> um, should I be looking for anything in particular? How can I? know that I'm supporting I'm a local farmer. I mean, I think Whole Foods does a pretty good job of, you know, labeling something local, you know, mm-hmm. local, you know, locally produced. Um, but is that really the thrust of your initiation, you know, uh, efforts? Well, where do you live? What city do you live in? In Boston. In Boston. So you're pretty locked in winter-wise. You probably don't have a farmer's market that you could go to right now. That is correct. Yeah, so I mean that is the thing. Is so Whole Foods does a pretty good job. They kind of take the guesswork out. Uh, they do, they do source pretty responsibly. They um, they they hold their suppliers to certain animal welfare standards. Um, they ban um, certain ingredients from from products. They don't sell processed food with certain ingredients. And they do. A, I mean, they do a pretty good job. If you don't want to have to think, if you just want to say, I am going to put my trust in Whole Foods. But you know, they. Maybe you're someone who really cares about human rights, and maybe you really only want to buy food that's that's produced under a sort of fair trade aspect. Well, they're not labeling for that. They're not going to tell you whether or not, I mean, except for the fair trade label, mm-hmm. but they're not going to tell you whether the farms that they're buying from locally are necessarily big, diverse, I mean, big monocultural organic uh, companies or not. So mm-hmm. it's sort of like we at the Epicurean, we kind of operate on a, you know, good, better, best. It's like you make the best choice available to you in the circumstances that you have, and you live in Boston in the winter, and you can't go to the farmer's market and buy directly from the farmer. So Whole Foods is, is not a bad next step. I mean, at least you're kind of willing to pay more for the 
for the chance to support food that wasn't necessarily produced by the industrial system. But, you know, when the when the spring comes, there there's lots of farmers markets in Boston that open up and just trying to maybe going to the farmers market every now and then when you're looking just for fresh produce and you don't need paper towels or something like that. That that alone giving your dollars directly to the farmer just in cutting out the middleman, it won't necessarily save you money because these will be smaller farmers and their costs are higher, but you'll be helping farming a lot more than just by shopping at Whole Foods. Hey, Bonnie, um, mm-hmm. talk to me about uh, ethical foods. Specifically, do you do you know some of what's going on, like in Chicago with the foie gras bans? Um, I know it was overturned recently. You know, a lot of chefs came out and spoke out against uh, the, the foie gras ban, but are there any updates or any other states considering doing something like this? Uh, there were. I think they've backed down. I think New York was considering it, and I think it, the chefs there just freaked out, and they've, they've backed down. But, you know, foie gras, I think, is kind of a... It's something that people really focus on because few people, it's sort of a, it's a low-hanging fruit mm-hmm. for the animal rights industry. It's kind of like few people eat it, it's a rich people's food, and it's generally considered, you know, pretty inhumane to force feed um, geese until their livers are, you know, basically about to explode. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so there's kind of not that many people willing to stand up for it when the best thing you can say about it is, well, it tastes really, really good. Um, I think... Uh, Dan Barber, who's a chef at Blue, uh, Blue Hill at Stone Barns in New York and a, a really talented uh, writer, has been telling a story of there is an ethical foie gras producer in Spain. And, in fact, he won some huge foie gras award for France for having the tastiest foie gras. And he raises his geese seasonally. Now, geese will normally stuff themselves they, in preparation for the long flight um, south. You know, and so their livers, like they're ha- they're designed to handle a certain amount. They will they will naturally stuff themselves. They won't stuff themselves quite as much as we would like them to stuff themselves. So mm-hmm. this particular farmer has, you know, found a way to encourage them through diet and, and selective breeding to sort of get really fat foie gras liver out of them without force feeding them. And so Dan Barber is is himself like brought some of these geese back, and now he's doing it. And so we may end up having a foie gras that you don't have to feel really guilty about. But mm-hmm. I personally think that the foie gras debate is a huge distraction when maybe there's 9,000 geese in the United States getting, um, you know, getting force-fed, but there are literally billions of chickens that right. are <laughs> being raised in cages the size of 8.5 by 11 paper, and that's two in that cage of 8.5 yeah. by 11 paper. And they're de-beaked and, you know, and they're pumped full of um, antibiotics to keep them from dying too quickly. And it's like, why are we really so concerned about the 9,000 geese that produce food for rich people versus the $2 a pound chicken that we all kind of depend on and the McDonald's it depends on? So I think the foie gras is, is debate is a distraction, and it would be the people who are so sort of obsessed with getting it passed would be better off focusing their attention on the sort of standard animal rights abuses that go on that support our cheap meat industry. And how about the other traditionally hot-button topic, veal? Are they really making, um, are they really making moves to, uh, you know, produce veal more humanely, you know, not keeping calves locked up in, in smaller, smaller environments? Are, you know, have, have there been any changes within that industry? Well, there, California passed a law that um, um, sort of gives 
more, better standards for uh, raising veal. Now, there's a little, I actually ate veal last week <laughs> um, from, a, uh, from a local farm um, who needed to slaughter some of its younger calves. And so this is not, this is what's called red veal, meaning that it's slightly older and it's been out on grass and moving around. I mean, these, these, these animals were never crated. But yeah, there is, a, there is, there is a movement afoot and it passed here and I think it passed in Arizona last year as well that, uh, you know, they have to have, they can't, they can't be raised, I believe, in darkness as a standard and, you know, they have to have more room to move around. But what people don't realize when they're talking about veal too is that Veal is a natural byproduct of the conventional dairy industry. In order to have this enormous supply of milk that we have, we have to get cows pregnant. And they have babies. And sometimes those babies are male. And that's where veal calves come from. There's, like, not much else you can do with them. Um, and so we, we kind of need to find a way to raise veal sustainably and not abusively because we have a surplus of male calves from the dairy industry. And, you know, unless people want them to see them going to dog food, then we kind of need to tackle this problem and not just say, like, well, no, we can't have any veal at all. Mm-hmm. So, as I said, it's a, it's a pretty tangled web. Like, you pull a thread and, and you start seeing that there's all these things dependent on it, and it, it doesn't make for easy sort of soundbite answers. And here's my, my last major question, and it's more of a pet peeve, but when are we going to see more price incentives for buying organic? I do, I, you know, I completely understand why organic is more expensive, but, you know, when are, we, when are we going to see some serious price incentives to buy more organic food? I mean, right now, you know, especially in a down economy, it is hard to make those decisions sometimes to buy organic oranges that are a dollar more expensive per orange, you know? Well, um, it depends on, I mean, one thing that, uh, well, keeping eating, I mean, it's, it's difficult. You're in Boston. I live in California. Oranges are seasonal right now. <laughs> so I can buy, I'm buying organic oranges that are grown in California. I just bought a, um, a two-pound bag for five bucks. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome. It's, it, <laughs> it depends on, um, it kind of depends on where you are. But eating seasonally where you are, which is kind of miserable if you live in the Northeast, I, I, will, I will grant you that, um, you you will find that the organic local organic can cost less than supermarket organic in that case if it's in season. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I mean, organic is is more expensive because we are paying more of the true cost of the food. There aren't subsidies from the government from the or, for the organic program. Now we're actually hoping that could change. There are some, some money in the that was in the farm bill that was passed last year that if it can be kept. I mean, it, with the budget crisis the way it is, like all sorts of programs are being, you know, scrutinized to be cut. But at the moment, or, organic sales of food in this country account for only about 4% of the total food sales. But the organic program itself only receives 2% of government funding. So it sounds like a tiny amount of money, but just, um, you know, another $5 million bucks to go to farmers who are trying to transition to organic to help them pay for the processing program that would lower their costs, that would eventually lower the cost of the food. Basically, it's a supply and demand problem. Until we can get more people to grow organic and, it, and, and more people to buy organic, the sort of chicken and the egg program, the prices can't come down because they're paying so much more for organic feed. Organic animal feed is almost 10 times what it is conventional animal feed. Right. So it costs 10 times as much to feed those chickens laying those organic eggs. Mm-hmm. And there's also, you know, there's they have to, 
they're not spraying pesticides, they're weeding by hand, labor costs, therefore, are much higher. So basically, until we can get the costs of producing organic food down, we're not going to see the costs of buying organic food go down. It's kind of, I sort of see it as if you can afford to do it, you should try to support it. Not everyone can. Mm-hmm. But you can you can make the best choices that you can afford to do. And I know I said that was my last one, but that was a lie. Um, so how is, how's the native bee population doing? I know we were suffering uh, a, a bee crisis recently. And, I mean, I love bees. I completely understand the importance of bees, you know, in uh, ecoculture and, uh, how are we doing? I know they were trying to introduce new new bees to the area to, to sort of build up the populations, but what's going on on that front? Well, funnily enough, um, Mark Reminger, who's one of the contributors to the Ethicurian, um, just wrote a very long post about native bees that went up about three days ago. It's on the Ethicurian, which is currently looking very ugly because we're having technical difficulties that I have to fix as soon as I get <laughs> off the phone. But, uh, so, yes, um, the native bee population is, is being studied in... Um, you know, the, the, the colony collapse disorder that everyone was talking about, um, you know, this crisis in bees, that's actually for bees that are farmed. Mm-hmm. That's, that was happening, it was happening in native bee populations as well, but to a lesser extent. So what a lot of people don't realize is that we have um, literally billions of bees that work for us in, in this country. <laughs> they right. travel around on trucks with massive beehives to pollinate mm-hmm. um, industrial agriculture, like the almond crop. Almost all of the almond crop is pollinated by worker bees or bees that work for us mm-hmm. um, that are rented out. And so those are the bees that have been having um, a severe crisis, and they think there's uh, many, many reasons for that. And some people say genetically modified food, and other people say pesticides, and other people say environmental toxins, and nobody knows yet it's being studied. But in the meantime, um, our native bee population really depends on ecological diversity. Our native, popu- native bee population doesn't like parking lots and doesn't like um, 50 acres of nothing but soy. It needs trees, it needs flowers. And so um, Mark's post talks about, he's going to have a post soon, too, about um, building sort of bee nests for your backyard so that just you can help encourage, just on a small scale, like to encourage native bees to to survive by giving them um, a habitat within the city or in the country if you can. Um, and, And beekeeping... It's pretty interesting. Um, I know a lot of people around here who do it, and you know, even if you're not interested in it from the hunting purposes, it's um, it can be kind of a cool thing to do if you just sort of want to participate in the in the in the pollination cycle. That's pretty awesome, Byron. What do you what do you think? What do you think I'm over there? I'm hoisting my buy local flag up <laughs> on the top of our building as we speak. <laughs> um, but I uh, I just think this is really great knowledge to get out to, to listeners, so it's really been great having you on the show today. Oh, great. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, Amanda, any other final wrap-up questions? Or are we? Um, I mean, if you had one thing that you would like to see more people do, besides buy local produce, what else would it be, Bonnie, just to, as a final closing? Any, any tips or any advice that you could share with us, you know, um, you know, other than the, you know, chew the right thing, which is something produced locally. Well, Michael Pollan has a great, great phrase and that it's like, you get three chances a day to vote with your fork. You know, maybe not everybody feels like going, going whole crazy into this. And you can kind of make yourself crazy with all of the issues that you, that you could think about if you want to. But if you just vote with your fork, like once 
a day or, you know, or try to make a local dinner once a week even. Mm-hmm. Just once a week. See if you can make a dinner that where almost all the ingredients were grown within 100 miles mm-hmm. of where you are and that are in season. Mm-hmm. And you'll find that just sort of the act of having to figure that out and having to think about where things come from, they sort of, they start, you sort of start looking around and, and, and thinking about more what you chew because I personally hate the term foodies. <laughs> it makes, I, I feel like foodie sounds really sort of baby-like and like, like we're all sort of mm. sucking on our food pacifiers. And, mm-hmm. and really it's just, um, you know, I mean, food is, a, food is an amazing gift that we can enjoy and we can savor, and, but it really is about more than taste. I mean, we are what we eat, but we are also what we eat eats. So it's just if you, if you think about even where a tiny percentage of where your food comes from, you're already doing something that most Americans don't do. Mm. Is there a word you would like to be called? <laughs> I haven't come up with that one yet. I guess Epicurean. <laughs> Epicurean. Perfect. Epicurean. <laughs> That's great. Um, well, we, uh, and, and just, okay, one more final question. The, there, there is a fair amount of momentum being built from uh, chefs that are, um, you know, have, have gone organic, if you will, and lo- are using local produce and are also even getting involved in recycling their oil, et cetera, et cetera. Is there any big wave or movement that we could expect to see on the doorways to the fine restaurants of the world and, and even the local restaurants of the world? Is there, any, is there any sort of like branding that's being done to put the stamp of approval on local produce being used that you know about? Uh, well, there is a um, Buy Fresh, Buy Local campaign that's pretty national, and, and um, there are guides for several cities that will give you um, a, a list of the restaurants that, that do serve local and sustainable ingredients. And, in fact, there's a fantastic guide that I should, have, that I should tell everyone about. It's called the Eat Well Guide, and it's online at uh, eatwellguide.org, um, or if you just Google Eat Well Guide, and you can plug in your zip code. And it will give you a list of restaurants in your zip code that that either serve, um, you know, no hormone meat or buy from farmers, and it'll give you a little description of like what their practices are, as well as uh, list any farmers markets in your in your area and um, grocery stores like Whole Foods and small independent ones that serve this kind of food. So, yeah, eat, the Eat Well Guide is a fantastic resource, and they also have a, a trip guide so that you could you could plot a road trip, and it will give you a downloadable map with uh, restaurants along your path, which is um, pretty cool. Wow, that sounds really neat. It's a project of sustainable table, and it's, um, it's, a, really, it's a pretty comp- comprehensive one. I mean, I've, I've used it in Florida and New Orleans and many places. What is sustainable table while I have you here and you're the expert on everything seemingly? <laughs> sustainable food. table is a, a nonprofit, um, and I don't know if you've ever encountered the Metrix video. That's M-E-A-T-R-I-X which is a, a three-minute short animated film spoof on The Matrix, which is a fantastic, uh, <laughs> fantastic introduction <laughs> to the industrial meat industry. And Sustainable Table produced The Matrix along, along with The Matrix 2, and uh, I think there's even a Matrix 3, and they're very fun. <laughs> they're very fun. They're really wonderfully done. I think they've been viewed something like 20 million times by all over the world. Wow. And Sustainable Table is a, a great nonprofit foundation, um, that just does a lot of stuff, a lot, a lot of funds, a lot of um, education and outreach campaigns, and, and also supports the Eat Well Guide, which is a pretty big project. Hmm. 
This has been quite a burst of information here in the end. I'm dizzy, frankly. This I'm is- sorry. <laughs> I talk really fast. That's my problem. <laughs> no, this is really good data, eatwellguide.org. Uh, um, uh, particularly, I'm, I'm on that. That's really that's really neat. That's really cool. Any other sites that come to mind that are great resources um, that you can think of off the top of your head? Well, I don't know if your your readers are probably familiar with um, grist.org, which is a, an online environmental news magazine. Mm-hmm. And grist has a fantastic has fantastic food coverage as well um, from an environmental and um, sustainable standpoint. So I would definitely check out grist.org. Um, and you can even subscribe to their RSS feed just for food for, for food topics as well. That's G-R-I-S-T dot org. What Correct. about Meat meat Paper? Tell us about that. Uh, meat Paper is not online, unfortunately. It's a print magazine with a pretty small subscription, but it is, it's an interesting, interesting sort of magazine that is a cross between kind of academic and um, – a little bit of food porn, but very unusual food porn. Like the latest issue has um, a, a guy who designs um, costumes made out of meat, <laughs> and um, and I and I wrote about the experience of um, eating lamb testicles for meat paper, and also another article about making head cheese from an entire pig's head. So meat paper has a real range of range of stuff, but it's um it's very beautifully designed and um, well produced, and it's well worth a subscription because it, it can be hard to find in bookstores. It's in major bookstores in, like, New York and Washington and San Francisco, but I'm not sure it has distribution outside those. What are your favorite uh, publications to read with regards to their interest level on your end of learning about sustainability and food? You know, you know, Eat Well magazine, you know. Uh-huh. Well, you know, there, there, um, there aren't a whole lot of print ones, um, and the ones that were around are kind of going away pretty fast. Plenty's folded, um, which was good, and... Um, but mostly I read I read online. I read a lot of blogs, and uh, you know I read the New York Times food section. And Andrew Martin, writing for the New York Times, has been covering um, will cover a lot of food politics stuff. And Jane Black, writing for the Washington Post, does a fantastic job of of these kinds of issues. Um, one of the things we do at Ethicurian is twice a week we provide a roundup of um, news links to articles in major media and on blogs that are of interest from the standpoint, whether it's, you know, government regulation or government supporting the organic program or the fact that the FDA just approved um, genetically modified goat milk. <laughs> yeah. or, um, so we do, ha- we do have a news roundup on the Ethicurian. It's one of the things that I think our readers really like because since there's 10 of us, you know, we're all reading a lot of different things and mm-hmm. the, the kinds of links that we provide are, are unusual. But from a, from a magazine standpoint, I... I have to say that I like I, I read meat paper and I really like the um, I work for one of them so it's not really fair but the edibles um, there are now almost fifty I think there's over fifty edible magazines around the United States I'm sure I know there's an edible Boston mm-hmm. um, there's you know edible edible Brooklyn and edible Manhattan and um, those those magazines are are a good way of finding local farms and and restaurants that use mm-hmm. local produce they are all um, they are all focused kind of on a, the local food community and that, from that standpoint. So if you find one of those at your local Whole Foods, I, I highly recommend picking it up. Neat. One other twist on the edible concept, there was a fundraiser event um, in Boston here called Edible Art, and it featured oh, uh, very – have you ever heard of anything like that in San Francisco where you are now? Mm-mm. It was. It's a really neat fundraiser. It it um, it brought in various chefs um, that 
created food, art out of food that they prepared that was obviously edible, that uh, was sort of a showpiece. Um, and they had this event in, at, uh, at, uh, at a famous jewelry store you know, to, to bring in customers to the jewelry store. And then there was a silent auction that was part of it. But the, the food was always the centerpiece of the event. Hmm. And what yeah. was it fundraising for? Um, charities, I believe, for various art schools, Mass College of Art. I, I, I believe it was a fundraiser for various art schools. I see. So they, okay. It, you know, so they sort of wanted to bring art together with food, and, and, and they called it edible art. Um, really neat idea. Cool. So, well, best of luck with what you're doing in uh, Epicurean. and fabulous uh, talking with you today, Bonnie. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me, and I um, I look forward to you know people out there using one of their one of their three votes a day to to uh, choose the right thing. Right on. Thanks for listening right. in, everyone. Thanks for being with us, Bonnie. Amanda, we're a little bit mm-hmm. more knowledgeable once again at the end of the show. That's right. And Byron, real quick, you know who's on with us next week? Do tell. Marilyn Cray, your favorite. Well, there you go. What a great there you follow-up go. So to the show of, as lots well. Lots of health topics for next week, and she's she's going to be bringing some really cool information with her. That is great stuff. Get excited about that, everyone. That is one of the most popular downloads we have on, on the Life Tip Show. Marlene is a vast resource for us all. So until next week, everybody, which I can't wait for, <laughs> um, <laughs> I hope your life's a little bit smarter. Better. Faster. And healthier. Right on. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week.